0: I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're On Pump. With a podcast that takes you inside the beating heart of modern medicine and explores the fascinating world of perfusion, the science that keeps the blood flowing during life-saving surgeries.
1: Hello and welcome, Amanda. Today, we have a special guest, Amanda Crosby, a perfusionist with extensive experience in the field. Amanda has been actively involved with AMSECT, the American Society of Extracorporeal Technology, As the chair of the International Consortium for Evidence-Based Perfusion, or ICEBP, her efforts have been strong and relentless in developing and updating the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice. Today, we'll be discussing Amanda's involvement with Ansect and the importance of these standards and guidelines for perfusionists. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience as a perfusionist? Sure. Thank you for having me. First of all, I've been working in the field of
2: perfusion for over nine years now, and I've had the opportunity to work in a variety of clinical settings. I've also been actively involved with AMSEC for many years and have contributed to their efforts to develop and update the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Amanda. And an interesting fact about Amanda is that she was once a fierce bodybuilding competitor. So that's how we know not to mess with her. And above this fun little factoid, she only deserves our praises for the work she has put into the standards and guidelines.
0: I can't imagine the kind of discipline it takes to participate in those competitions. But it also kind of makes me wonder what kind of cardiac index you'd need on bypass here. (laughs) So maybe we should start with a quick explanation of what AMSECT is and what their role is in the perfusion community.
2: Yeah, thanks for the kind words. I'd be happy to explain more about AMSECT. It is the American Society of Extracorporeal Technology. And they are a national professional organization that serves perfusionists and other professionals involved in extracorporeal technology. And they provide education and resources to help members stay current with the latest developments in perfusion practice and also develop and update the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice, among many other numerous resources you can find on their page.
1: Amanda, can you give the listeners an overview of what the standards and guidelines are and why they're important to our industry and to our patients?
2: Yeah, so I've been involved in the AMSEC standards and guidelines for several years now and been a part of the team that develops and updates the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice. It's a collaborative effort that involves input from perfusionists, physicians, and other healthcare professionals, and it's essential to ensuring that we're providing the best possible care to our patients. The standards and guidelines provide a framework for perfusionists to follow in their practice. They can ensure that They're adhering to the best practices and using the most up-to-date techniques and equipment. They also help to ensure consistency in our practice and promote standardization, which is essential for patient safety and good outcomes. Perfusion is a fairly new industry compared to other
0: medical professions. When did the idea for standards and guidelines initially materialize for perfusion? And maybe you can touch on who was part of that original work group and what the original document looked like.
2: Yeah, so this idea for standardization and having more structured guidelines actually goes back to 1993, but it started under a different name. Back in 93, the Amsex Perfusion Quality Committee first published the Essentials for Perfusion Practice and then later the Essentials and Guidelines with the help of the American Academy for Clinical Perfusionists, so the AACP, and that was in 1994. Well, in 2011, the AMSAC board of directors approached the ICBP to update the standards and guidelines for our profession, and the wording from essentials to standards came as a result to match the intent and definition used by the International Organization for Standardization, the ISO, and so the name was changed to the AMSAC standards and guidelines. In short, the standards are practices that an institution shall meet to fulfill the minimum safety requirements for bypass while the guideline definition reads that recommendations should be considered or may assist in the development or implementation of protocols. And so the first official standards and guidelines were actually created by the ICBP under the direction of Dr. Rob Baker. And the proposed standards and guidelines were presented at three different conferences to gather feedback from the community. And that document, just like our newest version, was shaped by that community feedback. And so after the board directors reviewed it and reviewed from the community, The standards and guidelines were put up for vote by the AMSEC membership for approval, and that vote passed. And so the first standards and guidelines were officially released in the fall of 2013. So if my knowledge
0: is correct, JECT also published peer-reviewed papers, one with the original 12 components, which I thought was fascinating, and another with the 2013 revisions that can be accessed on AMSEC's publications archive page or PubMed. And it's incredible to see how far we've come. The 2013 revision covered our practice with 50 standards and 38 guidelines, and 81.2% of the membership voted in favor of the document's ratification. The living documents are continually updated, and it takes a lot of work and interprofessional collaboration and belief in the importance of staying current with the new evidence in the field. I saw a survey that Donnie Lycosky published a few years back, and it said that 67% of the perfusionist respondents had read all or part of the STS-SCA blood management guidelines that were published in 2007. But it also reported that only 26% of those respondents had implemented one or more changes in response to the guidelines. So Amanda, last year at AMSEC, your presentation on the standards and guidelines included audience responsibles to gather information on the implementation rate of the standards and guidelines, updates, in perfusion. Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah, so last year at the AMSEC International Conference in Phoenix, I gave a presentation on the proposed changes that we'd been working on for the standards and guidelines, and we were looking for some community feedback. And during the talk, I polled the audience with a few questions to try to get a better idea of the exposure and the implementation of the current standards and guidelines. And so we did this using an electronic audience response system. And we found that 100% of the audience answered that they knew the standards and guidelines existed. So that was super exciting to hear. Doesn't necessarily mean that was a representative sample and that truly 100% of all perfusions in the country are aware, but it gave us some hope that our advertising and presenting about them was actually working. And so we followed up that question with one on accessibility. We asked if everyone knew that this document was free to access and not just for AMSEC members. And 76% of the audience said yes. But that still means that about a quarter believe the standards and guidelines were a paid or member only resource. And so that's really huge. It's really important for everyone to know the standards and guidelines are a free resource. There's always been some debate on what we should or shouldn't give away for free or hold back as member privilege. But we felt the standards and guidelines are so fundamental to implementing a safe perfusion practice that this resource should be available to all. And it is. You don't need to be a member to access these. It's open to all. There's no login required. We also asked the audience about the implementation of the standards and guidelines. So we confirmed you knew it existed. That's great. It's a great start. But have you read them? And then have you actually tried to implement any of these changes into your program, we found about half the audience, 53 percent, responded that they'd actually not only read it, but continued it on and made changes at their institutions based on those standards and guidelines.
1: Amanda, it's really great to hear that you presented these proposed changes to the standards and guidelines at last year's ANSEC conference in Phoenix and that the audience knew about these guidelines. It's important for everyone to know that the standards and guidelines are a free resource and that 53% of the audience has implemented changes based on them. Your efforts are making a real difference and I'm inspired with the impact this resource is having on safe perfusion practices. So this document becomes a reality. Can you take us through the process of rolling the first set out?
2: Yeah, so after the release in 2013 of the Samsung Guidelines, they were updated again in 2017. And that version received an official endorsement from the American Association for Thoracic Surgery, the AATS. And for our newest iteration, the one in, in 2023, we asked the w a d s if they would participate in the editing process. We included as well the American Academy of Clinical Perfusionists, the AACP, like I mentioned earlier, in that development process. And this was a, a big deal because this was the first time where a non-perfusion professional society had the opportunity to provide direct input into the standards and guidelines. And we did it because we believe it's important to have a broad stakeholder endorsement to support team-based review and implementation, which makes sense, right? These are perfusion-specific standards, but having a document you can take to your surgeon that's backed by their society, backed by the AATS, helps provide weight if needed to make changes at your institution. So while this document is for perfusionists, and we don't intend to get away from that, it's important to have buy-in from every one of the team. Implementing changes at your institution will be easier if the document's supported by those external professional societies that are represented within your OR. So in the future, we'd like to collaborate with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, that's the STS, and the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists, that's the SCA. We'd also like to look into partnering with the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies. It's important for us to get this multi-stakeholder collaboration so that way everybody on the team can participate. So while the standards and guidelines are written for perfusionists, cardiac surgery is really a team sport.
1: Well, it's really encouraging to hear that the development process included input from a variety of stakeholders, including the AATS and the AACP. As you mentioned, having broad stakeholder endorsement is crucial for team-based review and implementation, which is especially important in cardiac surgery. I agree that having the support of external professional societies like the AATS can provide weight when making changes at your institution. It is also so exciting to hear that there are plans to collaborate with additional organizations in the near future. I echo your comments about cardiac surgery being a team sport as having buy-in from everyone on the team can only help with adoption and credibility. To add further, I just can't help it. I have to give a little plug to the Amstek Pillar Award here. It just segues so nicely into a small sidebar on that because there are so many perfusionists out there trying to better the profession through positive avenues. For those who are not familiar, the AMSECT Pillar Award is a designation for individual perfusion departments, which demonstrate excellence as displayed in a number of key areas, including organized orientation and training, quality assurance, quality improvement processes, continuing education and performance evaluation, development of institutional protocols and adherence to AMSEC standards and guidelines, as well as employee education and commitment to the field of perfusion. What do you think about the AMSEC Pillar Award, Amanda?
2: I'm happy you brought it up. I think applying for the AMSEC Pillar Award for perfusion excellence is a great opportunity to showcase the exceptional care that your institution is striving for. And the designation is meant to recognize centers who are working hard toward developing and delivering high-quality care in the areas you just mentioned. If you're wondering if your hospital qualifies or how you could get your hospital to that next level, I'd encourage you to reach out to me or visit the Awards and Designations webpage on the AMSEC website to learn more.
0: That's a fantastic point. So these are all resources that I know are not like an AMSEC podcast, but, you know, it's a great way to get started. And I think it's really important for people listening in to to really get to know what AMSEC truly offers its membership and what it offers cardiac surgery in terms of quality and outcomes. So segueing into that, you know, perhaps for the first time in perfusion, with the technological advancements our society has nowadays, transparency of practice is really reaching a peak. And this pillar award makes me reflect on how much new graduates really rely on centers to set up their practice in a way that aligns with the updated data perfusion program curriculums are teaching, as well as maintaining compliance with the standards and guidelines to maximize safety. So to be a little controversial, are all centers new grad centers?
1: I have to add a little something on this to further the conversation. So I am currently in the process of hiring for a new perfusion program at Texas Children's in Austin. And I can tell you that not all centers are new grad centers. However, in my experience, as long as a center is adequately equipped and can budget for the adoption of the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice, hiring new graduates can be a viable option. Bear with me as I provide a little bit more of a testimonial. I do believe that new graduates can be the most adaptable to teaching and training as they are still in that learning mode post-graduation, and they're also eager to apply their knowledge and skills. Of course, proper mentorship and support is crucial in ensuring that they receive the necessary guidance and experience to develop into competent perfusionists. And that being said, I also recognize the importance of having a mix of experienced and new perfusionists on a team. Experienced perfusionists bring valuable knowledge and insights to the table and can serve as mentors and leaders for newer perfusionists. Ultimately, the key is to build a well-rounded team that can provide safe and effective perfusion care to patients. I'm a little long-winded on this one, but to provide more context on this conversation, another important factor is safely operating a perfusion team with an inexperienced new hire is the N plus one staffing model, which is considered a guideline in adult perfusion practice and a standard actually in pediatric practice. The N plus one model refers to having one extra perfusionist beyond the minimum number required to operate the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. For example, if a perfusion team requires one perfusionist to operate the circuit, the N plus one model would mean having two perfusionists available for the case. This additional perfusionist would serve as a backup and can step in if one of the primary perfusionists becomes unavailable or needs assistance. Of course, the counter to the staffing method would likely be adhering to the hospital's budget and affording the proper staff numbers. So in a nutshell, I'll get to the point. (laughs) Implementing the N plus one stabbing model can help mitigate the risks associated with having an inexperienced perfusionist on the team. It does ensure that there is always an experienced perfusionist available to provide guidance and support and can help prevent errors or complications that could potentially harm the patient. I do feel like this is a personal testimonial to my experience as a pediatric perfusionist and having that N plus one implemented. So... While it's possible to hire new graduates for perfusion positions, it's crucial to have the proper mentorship, support, and staffing models to ensure safe and effective perfusion care. Yeah, that's a
0: great point to add on to that a little bit. You know, you have the N plus one staffing model, so it's important to have a backup perfusionist. And I can't hammer away at this enough that not only do you need an N plus one, but it's probably a better situation if that N plus one has a mix. Where you don't have two new grads together because there's only so far that that'll take you in a crisis management situation. So I'm really fortunate to work at a center where the chief really believes in that, believes in the N plus one staffing model. And not only that, the hospital administrators also support that budgetarily, financially, but also as a philosophy, they also believe in that to provide safe care. And Further than that, they also believe in the right pairing of individuals together. So you always have somebody with, you know, five or less years of experience paired with somebody with 10, 15, 20 years of experience. It's really great. But I love the point that you brought in here that if centers are open and willing to implement the updated standards and guidelines, that there's no reason why it can't safely take on new grads. And the timing of the conversation couldn't be better aligned, right? We just finished updating the standards and guidelines this past year. And Tiffany and I had the amazing privilege of being part of that working group to the ICBP, and it was a whirlwind. Just seeing the depth of the project was incredible. So could we give an inside look at the workflow and process of reopening that document for updates through to the ratification process?
2: So it's a collaborative process that involves input from a variety of stakeholders. And we start by reviewing the current guidelines and looking for areas that need updating or improvement. We then gather input from perfusionists, physicians, and other healthcare professionals to identify best practices and develop new guidelines. The standards and guidelines are written with really three main goals in mind. One, to provide a framework for your clinical practice. So these standards and guidelines are designed as a template for your perfusion team to follow and strive towards. Two, to define expectations. So the standards and guidelines attempt to describe practices, technology, and the conduct of care that institutions shall meet in order to fulfill those minimum safety requirements for bypass. And third, to reduce variation. So the standards and guidelines help to standardize basic aspects of bypass, which are deemed requirements for patient safety. So once the guidelines are developed, they go through a rigorous editing process of peer review supported by evidence-based practice, and then undergo a regulatory and legal review as well.
1: Amanda, I really want to express my deep appreciation and gratitude for the timeless efforts that went into rolling out these latest edits to the standards and guidelines. The new guidelines will help ensure that we are providing the highest quality perfusion care to our patients and will set the standard for our profession going forward. I do want to acknowledge the incredible effort that you put into getting the final edits approved. It was a long and challenging process, it sounds like, with a lot of back and forth and patience required. Your dedication, expertise, and attention to detail were absolutely essential in ensuring that these guidelines were accurate, comprehensive, and practical. Your hard work, Amanda, has truly made a difference for all of us in the Perfusion community, and I'm grateful to have you as a colleague and a leader. Thank you for your commitment to excellence and your tireless advocacy for a profession. To continue on, that current document did include six additions to the preamble for definitions and clarification, where the main document included 43 edits. Amanda, in an upcoming article for AMSEC Today, you do highlight how 29 of those changes were a direct result of community feedback. Can you give us an example of a recent update to the standards and guidelines that has had a significant impact on perfusion practice?
2: We always say this document is shaped by you, and that's true. Over the past two years, we've been collecting feedback from profusionists in the community through a variety of different platforms, through six different profusion conferences, four different online webinars, direct emails, and open-ended survey that we sent out. And so we read through all of this feedback that we received, and like you mentioned, the standards and guidelines were changed by that feedback in 29 different areas as a direct result of your comments. And the first standards and guidelines document in 2013 had 15 sections. We continue to update the standards and guidelines to reflect the ever-evolving changes within our practice. And this new 2023 edition actually has 19 sections. One recent update that received a lot of feedback was moving oxygen delivery from a guideline to a standard. Now, we don't specify how it should be recorded or the frequency or the threshold of DO2 as these are specifics that we felt should be left up to your institutional protocol. That's, again, referring back to that cornerstone principle of standard 1.1. But we also don't want this to imply that you have to go out and buy new equipment or buy a new monitor just for measuring this DO2. So we've created a printable, quick reference, again, free chart that will tell you your DO2 based on cardiac index and hemoglobin levels. And so this DO2 chart, along with a patient care plan sheet and several other resources are being released with this 2023 update to help in the implementation of these new changes that we've made. On the AMSEC website, you can find our FAQs, which is something new that we've done this year, which is our frequently asked questions. It's a culmination of common questions that we've received that we've provided answers for. So if you have a question while you're reading through the 2023 update, make sure to check those FAQs. You might find your answer is already there.
0: So to continue on, there are a few updates in that article coming up that you're going to publish for AMSEC Today that does a deep dive on the thought process behind some of these standards and guidelines. And it also includes an explanation for that new Section 19. Are there any of those updates you'd like to comb through here for
2: our listeners? Like you mentioned, there are 49 edits in total with this new 2023 version. And a lot of them are really just small changes, wording changes, for clarity, or things we took out to reduce redundancy. So I won't cover them all because that's a lot of them, but there are a couple that I can point out that were larger changes or that we received more feedback on. So the first one would be standard 3.3, which makes perfusion involvement in the post-procedure debrief a requirement. And so a lot of people think this, hear this and think, well, we don't currently have a debrief process. How am I supposed to get involved in one? But I'd almost guarantee that your institution is doing one. You just may not be noticing it. A post-procedure debrief is mandated by the WHO and ARN as well as the Joint Commission and usually covers things like confirming the procedure with a surgeon or instrument counts. So you're likely doing one and you just don't know it. But we believe perfusion should be involved in this post-procedure debrief, which is in line with the spirit of the Joint Commission process such that all present during the procedure are part of the post-procedure debrief, is how it's stated. And a post-procedure debrief doesn't have to be lengthy or formal to be effective. You can do one during chest closure. Debrief provides an opportunity at the end of every case for anyone in the room to voice safety concerns, safety events, equipment issues, changes to the surgeon protocol, Something he did differently this time that he liked or something that he did differently that he didn't like can be post-operative instructions, their care for once they leave and go to the unit, or it could even be positive events and good catches. Another large change for the 2023 is the addition of Section 19 on crisis management, which includes a standard and five accompanying guidelines that are all aimed to help the perfusionists prepare for unforeseen circumstances that might interrupt supply chains, affect operating rooms, or... Create a shortage of personnel. This obviously stemmed as a result of the issues with COVID that I'm sure you guys have all had experience at your hospital. It's all affected us in one way or another. And uh, this section was designed to ensure that perfusion departments have prepared for those potential hazards and unidentifiable risks. And the idea is for perfusionists to collaboratively form a crisis management plan within your hospital in advance of those events so that you're prepared for sudden changes that might inhibit the ability to perform those standard duties. So, for example, I'd imagine your hospital has an incident command center and likely code names or colors for certain events, like an active shooter or fire or severe weather. But how do you know where perfusion fits into those events? Do your or our doors have locks in the event of an active shooter? What would the plan be? Who's required to stay behind? Your action plan might also talk about potential ORs that could be used as backup heart rooms or pump storage space in the event something's compromising those other areas. So these are just some examples, but the goal of Section 19 is to get you thinking and preparing a plan before those situations arise. And as part of the toolkit that I mentioned earlier, we also released a a supply chain management resource to help describe areas for consideration to prevent gaps in coverage while balancing the adequate supply versus wastage. If you're looking for more information on how to better manage the potential supply chain issues you might be experiencing.
1: Thank you so much for sharing the information about the new Section 19 on crisis management for perfusionists. It's really great to see the profession taking proactive steps to prepare for the unforeseen circumstances and potential hazards that could arise. Given recent events like the school shooting in Tennessee and so many others this year, not to go down that route, but it is a true reality. This addition feels particularly timely and necessary. As someone involved in opening a new heart program, I appreciate the reminder to think ahead and plan for potential disruptions in our operations. I'm looking forward to creating a comprehensive crisis management plan myself for our institution. So this is great that AMSEC stands behind this and is a great resource for these kinds of things.
0: Thank you so much, Amanda. I mean, I love the example that you gave for that Section 19. And I feel like maybe this could be a pivot to kind of like a new era in perfusion where we look a little bit beyond that cardiopulmonary bypass circuit in terms of where we could be effective and efficient for our hospital. I really also wanted to cover how the ICBP is currently working on another fantastic project sort of in line here, and that's the international
2: standards and guidelines.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what to expect with that and how that differs from the current document we utilize in the US now?
2: At the moment, we are working on a universal bypass checklist with the goal of eventually creating a universal set of standards and guidelines. We hope that the list will help developing countries and those without current standards and guidelines to have a template for establishing their practice. Many countries are still establishing professional societies or working to get perfusion recognized as an official profession. And it's been interesting learning what differences exist in certain countries and how that plays a factor in our resource development. But ultimately, we all have the same goal of safety quality perfusion for our patients, no matter where you live.
1: i that the potential for implementing these standards and guidelines may also serve as a template for countries where the profession may still be emerging. The scope of this project is certainly awe-inspiring. And now being a pediatric perfusionist, I'm not sure if our talk today covers the latitude of this, but we also do have separate pediatric guidelines and guidelines for mechanical circulatory support.
0: I love that little plug that you gave there about what it's like to implement standards and guidelines in developing countries. And we talked a little bit today about what it's like to get the profession recognized in other countries. So I just have to put a plug that Bob Groom is on our wish list here. And he's got such an interesting experience as a perfusionist. And he's currently in Kenya. And he just opened KSECT, you know, the Kenya Society of Extracorporeal Technology. So... Hopefully, we can get him on here, figure out the time zone differences for that (laughs) one. I hate to add fuel to the fire here, but I just love stirring the pot a little bit. Tiff, you and I sat through a heated debate this year at AMSEC between Bruce Yerles and Ed Darling on whether pediatric perfusion should be considered a specialty. A large argument was highlighting that although we have separate standards and guidelines, the difference between them are minutiae and could arguably be placed in the adult one because the applications are just the utilization of smaller circuits and limb perfusion so in your opinion why was the pediatric standards and guidelines separated out as a different document, and why do you think some of these components don't translate to the adult practice?
1: Okay, caution. i got to take these two seconds to talk about this debate at the AMSEC 61st International Conference this year, because things got heated. But let me just tell you, it was in a completely fun, fiery, and well-intentioned way, of course. I loved how Bruce Searles and Ed Darling kind of captured this debate. So yours truly was there and witnessed the whole thing, I swear I saw Tammy Rosenthal's jaw drop to the ground and Jim Rager's eyes roll all the way back in his head. Bruce and Ed were just going at it. And Bruce claimed that the adult and pediatric standards and guidelines were the same exact thing. And from his perspective, pediatrics has absolutely no place to be considered a specialty. Can you believe it? I mean, I am a pediatric perfusionist. So yes, I am biased on the pediatric side, but it's like saying that a tricycle and a Ferrari are the same thing because they both have wheels. As a pediatric profusionist myself, I know that couldn't be further from the truth. The standard of practice for pediatrics is completely different than for adults, in my opinion. It's like comparing apples and oranges, except the apples are the size of golf balls and the oranges are size of watermelons. Let me stop with the comparisons here. In my opinion, Ed Darling won that debate. But let's be honest, we need to get both of them on our podcast show just to let them bang out round two of this debate. I mean, we need to settle this once and for all. And no harm, no foul. As a pediatric perfusionist, I believe that the physiology and anatomy of children are significantly different from adults Infants and children have different cardiovascular systems, metabolic rates, and oxygen consumption rates compared to adults. As a result, the standards and guidelines for perfusion practice in pediatric patients should be separate from those for adults to ensure the safety and effective delivery of care. And this is exactly how they are. They are separated at current. I feel like you're getting
0: really heated here. I include this before, you know, you run out of oxygen and on pump goes on ECMO. What's your cannula <laughs> size? Tiffany is officially out of commission on her ran here. <laughs> that debate left a lot of people feeling some kind of way. But to end this off, you know, I'd really love to go through really quick, like you already mentioned a few of those free resources. So where can our listeners find them to help assist with updating and implementing changes in their center?
2: So the new 2023 standards and guidelines can be found on the AMSEC website under the Policy and Practice tab. It's the one all the way to the right. And as I mentioned earlier, we have several new resources that have come out to help implement those new changes within the standards and guidelines. So the Patient Care Plan, which is basically an Excel sheet that helps you determine dilutional hematocrit, a printable DO2 chart, which can quickly give you an estimated oxygen delivery while you're on bypass. And again, that's for free without any additional monitoring. We didn't want that to be a hindrance to people using DO2 monitoring. The onboarding and checklist template is also a new resources that we have that can assist in the training of new personnel. So that's in support of the new standard 2.5, which we didn't really talk about, but it requires an institution to have an established process for orienting new hires that allows adequate time for them to safely perform perfusion duties. And so this template that we made will walk you through some of suggestions to help create that institution protocol. And the document on resource allocation and management, that helps describe areas for consideration for ordering supplies. We've all been affected by the decreased supplies and the back orders, and so this resource was meant to help you consider different aspects to prevent gaps in coverage, Again, while balancing that adequate supply versus ordering too many and having that wastage. And I just want to thank you ladies for having me on and giving me the opportunity to discuss the standards and guidelines. I know they can seem a little dry, but they're very important to our profession. And I'd like to just reiterate anyone listening, if you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me at the ICEBP, which is just ICEBP at AMSEC.org.
1: Manza, you are a wealth of knowledge, we really appreciate you and thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. It's clear that the standards and guidelines developed by Ansect are critical for ensuring the highest level of care for patients undergoing extracorporeal technology. We appreciate your insight and the work you're doing to advance the field of perfusion. Thank you for joining on our podcast and we look forward to having you back in the future to discuss more important topics in perfusion. That's a wrap for this episode, your source for all things Perfusion. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the Perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.